This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. Over the last 25 years, Clayton Freck has held leadership roles in the business, government, and nonprofit sectors. He became involved in the disability community when his first son, Ezra, was born missing his left knee and left fibula and with only one finger on his left hand. Following Ezra's passion for sports, Mr. Freck identified major gaps in access to sports programming for athletes with physical disabilities in the United States. In 2013, with the help of his friends and family, he set out to address these gaps and in 2015, he produced the first Angel City Games, which is now the largest Paralympic competition in the country and the West Coast's most prestigious Paralympic event. In 2015, Mr. Freck started a nonprofit organization, Angel City Sports, to address inequities in access to sport for kids and adults living with physical disabilities. In addition to serving as a strategic advisor to a number of small and mid-sized companies, he recently launched the Ampla Institute, a career development and planning firm dedicated to helping people find their purposes and optimize their career potential. In addition to serving as the CEO and founder of Angel City Sports, Freck was recently appointed to the board of directors for Move United. Hi, Clayton. Hi. So, Clayton, I've heard you talk about what led you to start Angel City Sports, and I'm hoping that you'll share that story with us here as well. But before we get started, I wanted to congratulate you and Ezra. I've heard that Ezra is heading to Tokyo in a few months. We're going to have him on the show as well. So, listeners, listen up for that episode. But I thought I'd give you a chance to share the reason why Ezra is going and perhaps also the reasons that you may or may not join him there. Uh, It's definitely a dynamic uh, time for us. He should, by all estimates and predictions, make the U.S. Paralympic team that goes to Tokyo for the Paralympic Games, which happen about two weeks after the Olympics. And the exciting thing for him and us uh, is that he'll have just turned 16 in May. So he's really young. He does the long jump, the high jump, and the 100 meter. And, you know, his journey the last couple of years has been pretty spectacular. I mean, he made the team as a 14-year-old. He just turned 14 and made the team with a pretty epic high jump, which was amazing in front of, you know, kind of a hometown crowd. And then he competed internationally and went to the Junior World Championships and then he went to the Parapan American Games in Peru. And then he went to the World Championships where he was literally the youngest athlete in the world at the World Championships in Dubai and didn't medal at Worlds, but I mean, he's 14. Uh, but he made the finals in his three events, and uh, but brought two silvers home from Peru and three medals from Junior Worlds. And so it's been an incredible journey. And obviously there's a, a pandemic year in there as well. <laughs> that was challenging. 
Uh, and it continues to affect things because just last weekend, I think it was Saturday morning, I got I woke up to the news that the Tokyo Organizing Committee, with the blessing of the IOC and the IPC, the International Paralympic Committee, they were not allowing foreign spectators to come to Tokyo. It looks like they're going to bar travel. So I think you know we're likely not going to Tokyo to watch Ezra compete, which is a little hard for us to swallow. And maybe I'm not in, I don't know that I've really accepted the news. Well, you're not yet accepting the news. I mean, I, I just think that this is, a, in a sense, a culmination of so much of what you have put your life's work into, which is the development of Ezra, your son, into a star Paralympic athlete competing at a very high level at a very young age. Maybe it's a good idea to just give some background and some context for the rest of our conversation, namely what led you to start Angel City Sports. What is Angel City Sports? What led you to create it? And how have you gotten from Angel City Sports to Ezra going to Tokyo? Yeah, I guess it's all it's all interconnected, isn't it? So Angel City Sports is a nonprofit that I started with our sort of friends and family really in 2013. And I'll share the backstory to that in a second. But we provide sports, really training, equipment, and competitive opportunities for kids, adults, and veterans, so all ages, with physical disabilities. And the physical disability distinction is important because a surprising number of people don't quite make that distinction. Uh, and they don't understand the differences between a intellectual or cognitive disability like Down syndrome versus someone that's just an amputee or has a spinal cord injury or had a stroke and has this you know side of their body that's not working that well or works differently. So when it comes to sport, there is good access to sports for people with intellectual disabilities. There is the Special Olympics and then many other programs. That's about 2% of the population with a ubiquitous brand, literally a global brand in Special Olympics, uh, national organization, chapters in most regions of the country, vibrant organization, and amazing, right? On our side, we, we cover 15% of the population that has a physical disability, and that may even be underreported. And you know, the list of disabilities on the physical side is, is so long, I can't even cover them all. And we don't have one entity. We're, we're a hodgepodge of little mom and pop organizations that have started up to solve a specific need in a specific little community. And so we have very low awareness. People get confused with Special Olympics. We have very limited access to programming. And then our participation numbers are very, very low. And this is sort of at a national scale. And so there's, we're very motivated because there's so much to do in the space. And so that's what Angel City is. It's just basically creating both competitive and also just fun, recreational, even fitness, uh, just getting people moving, getting people living healthy. So that's what Angel City is. And then when, I mean, I've had a kind of a eclectic career, I would say, but I never imagined I'd have a career in sport. I mean, it just never dawned on me. And I never really thought twice about disability. So these, I guess, two things landed on my lap when Ezra, my eldest son, was born, and he was born different. He was born missing his left knee and left fibula, which is the shin bone. He had a foot, and the foot was the leg was sort of curved up towards his waist, and he only had one finger on his left hand. And we were shocked in the you know delivery room, like, wow. I mean, the moment for me was, you know, my wife, you can't really see the baby coming out, and I noticed the hand first, and. Uh, 
I almost passed out in the delivery room. You know, it was like, what? Where's the hand? Like, what? It, you know, what happened? I sort of give credit to this like old nurse, you know, this old delivery nurse at the hospital who like gave me this look like, it's going to be okay and get your shit together. Like those are the two messages that she somehow communicated with her eyes. And I like held on to the side of the bed and made sure I didn't like fall over make more of a scene. But, you know, my wife and I were thrust into this world of raising a child as a congenital amputee is how we would call Ezra. And, you know, we had all this stresses that you can imagine. Is he going to be able to go to school? Is he going to be able to get married and have a, a life that we would have imagined? And where this gets personal for me is I sort of thought my job as a father was to get my kids into sport. I felt like I was like, you know, your first kid, you don't know how to be a father. It's learning on the job. And like, that was sort of the one thing that I, I got really, I think I, I learned from my father. So I got really sad that first summer because I didn't know it was possible that he was going to be able to do sports. I didn't understand that this whole world of adaptive and Paralympic sports existed. And so I just would go, I'll go surf, you know, and cry out in the water because I don't cry that much. And certainly don't cry in front of other people. But when you cry in the water, no one knows you're crying. It's like the best place to cry. And I just wouldn't, I wouldn't even catch waves, you know, I just would cry. And that led us to this whole world. I mean, we, I started Googling and I started trying to research and find out what was out there. And we found a, a now partner organization. Um, it was really the first organization that introduced us to this world, which is the Challenge Athletes Foundation. It's a crazy story, but we met one of the, he's probably still one of the best amputee surfers in the world. He came to this event and we spent the whole weekend with him and he was Brazilian and didn't speak much English. And you'll follow poco Portuguese. Like I don't speak a lot of Portuguese. I speak a tiny, tiny bit. So we just figured it out. And he literally like lifted me up out of that depression because he ripped. He's a great surfer on one leg, <laughs> which is like so hard to believe at the time. I'm like, oh my gosh, he's like better than me. Uh, like, like a lot better than me. He's a really good surfer. So that led us down this whole path and following Ezra's journey. He turned out to be a great athlete. He's been on a blade since he was four he had a big surgery to remove that lower leg when he was two and we took the toe from his foot that we removed put it on his hand so he could hold things which is really the definition of a hand is is the ability to oppose but he just loves sports and so this whole childhood just like okay how do i just keep him engaged keep him going in sport let you know let's get him and so he loved basketball like is his true true passion is basketball and we found we had friends in the Paralympic movement and went to our first kind of big Paralympic meet in 2013, which really was the inspiration for creating the Angel City Games. And that sort of evolved into the into the organization. And, you know, we're fighting for better access and opportunities for this community. And it's now way it's more than sport. You know, it has to be because there's so much else to do. Can you talk a little bit about the barriers to access that you found? You just mentioned that access is a real challenge. And I'd love to be able to have you talk a little bit about that problem of access, which is something I've heard you talk about before, um, pointing out that you traveled for long distances simply to provide Ezra with experiences or opportunities that many kids can get within a few miles of their house. Um, the access also extends to necessary medical or specialists who can only exist within a few cities or who only live within a few cities. Talk a little bit about those kinds of barriers to access, what you found and how you've been able to manage that. There's so many barriers to access and participation. It's sort of mind-blowing. It makes the work we do really, really challenging. 
So at a really basic level, I mentioned before, people don't even know these sports exist. So the demand isn't there because people don't even know these sports are possible. They don't know they even exist because it's not on TV. It's not in the media. It's nowhere. You know, everyone's heard of Special Olympics and they assume Special Olympics covers our community and they're wrong. And then they also assume that it must be available at schools or through traditional sports programs. It's not true. It's not true. It doesn't exist. The schools are really struggling to provide equal opportunities to these kids. And most kids, if they roll up to their track you know, practice in a wheelchair, the coach says, turns them away. Like that's the common story you hear across the country. Um, so our community doesn't even know to ask for it, it which is like the saddest part of it, right? So the awareness is so bad. But then assume they do know to ask and to start looking for it. If you look at actual programs that exist across the country, there are a handful of decent, strong programs, but none of them are really scaled up. Very few of them go beyond one specific metro area, right? Kind of a greater metro area. You know, like you pick a sport, but in Southern California, I could, there's so few sports in our world, in our space that there is a legitimate sort of athlete development pipeline if you wanted to go from learning and knowing nothing to even just becoming like a weekend warrior, right? Let alone becoming a Paralympian. So, you know, it's, you have to drive, right? And and you see our kids and our community driving a couple hours, even in Southern California or other parts of the country, driving hours to programming. So that's sort of a problem, right? That most of us non-disabled people can literally walk to the park and play a sport. And it's not really the same for this community. There are some sports that are easier to do, you know, integrate, but but mostly it's challenging. Then you get to call it sort of logistical, right? Disability is expensive. Disability like knocks you down in income class because oftentimes it means somebody has had to leave the workforce, right? Whether it's a parent to care for a child or a working adult that acquires disability that is knocked out of the workforce. It's almost impossible to sort of stay at your socioeconomic status after you've acquired disability. Um, and so now you've got, right, with that, you've got transportation, potentially transportation challenges. We as an organization haven't even, haven't even begun to scratch the surface of the lower income neighborhoods across Southern California. I mean, there's so much work to be done there. You would need to be on social media, have a cell phone, to have a computer to even find Angel City Sports, right? Like we put we put flyers out in libraries and stuff when we have our big games every summer. So we try, right? We do a pretty good job of trying, but like there's so much to do there, you know? And then and then say, okay, you've, you've, you're aware, you find a program that you're interested in where you can learn a sport and start to develop, you know, then there's, a, then there's equipment challenges, which I think is sort of a cool connectivity to the show, right? Which is there's equipment, there's technology basically that is required for a huge number of these athletes. And it's not cheap. So I need a pair of running shoes to go running. That's all, right? It's whatever. Big five, I can get them for 30 bucks. Ezra needs a running blade. He's an above knee amputee. He needs a running blade and a fancy knee. So now you're, it's like, you know, twelve, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000 for a running blade and insurance doesn't cover it. So like, so anyway, so I'm, I, I'm giving you a lot, but like it, it's, 
it's sort of this, I would say at times it looks daunting. And I haven't even touched the sort of social and emotional well-being, right? Which is if you're not doing well, even if I solved all of those problems for you, you still might not come out. You still, still may not participate because you're not feeling good enough about yourself. And this is a little bit off topic, but I think it's important to talk about the economics and the sociological dimensions of things. You know, our country right now is in a big fight about healthcare, about what should and should not be insured. Up until I think the early Obama years, there were a lifetime there were lifetime caps as to how much insurance could pay out for certain diseases or certain defects. And that changed a couple of administrations ago. But I think that we're constantly imperiled by the possibility that it will change back or change again. How do you think about those kinds of things as a parent? How do you think about the socioeconomic impact and the, the legislative and the policy-based dimensions that impact your life. You're absolutely right. I mean, I think the the debate around healthcare impacts our community, you know, people just living with disabilities so significantly. And I would say there's still a lot of work to be done out there. I mean, people get sort of randomly sort of kicked out off of Medicare, you know, which is a place where a lot of people with disabilities have health insurance. Um, especially if they if they don't have jobs or they're underemployed, and then it's like a fight to get back into the you know back into the system, and it, and it can take months, even years. I've personally watched multiple friends of mine go through this, where they're literally on the black market buying catheters and whatever they have to do because you know to go to a doctor's office these days without insurance is insane right it's so expensive and everyone in this community fights reimbursement issues endless reimbursement issues you know like if you have i don't even know all the rules but like it's hard to get a wheelchair right it's hard to get uh, if you have a prosthetic leg, it's hard to get a wheelchair if you need it to sort of get around, you know, when, you're, when your leg's bothering you or the leg's whatever. Um, there was even a moment, and luckily we haven't really had to fight too much of this personally, but we, we did have a moment where Ezra's prosthetic leg was denied. And I thought it was pretty interesting because it was the same insurance company that covered him when we amputated his leg. So they were the ones that funded the amputation surgery. And now they're saying that a prosthetic leg is not medically necessary, right? Like the irony of that is just so fascinating. And so I, I remember like I, I called uh, a friend who's a lawyer in this space. So, you know, I gave him a ring. So I was sort of prepared. And then I finally got somebody on the phone there and I just said, I don't think these are the stories that you want going out into the public. Like, what are you doing? Like, and so they researched it and they found that there was, you know, some sort of administrative error. Right. But again, I had access to a lawyer, so I knew my rights going into that conversation. My kids has been a star. He's been on the Ellen show. Like I could, I could, you know, if I had to, could get a story like that into the news, you know, which puts a lot of pressure on these insurance companies. But what are we doing for, you know, the family that maybe doesn't have a lawyer friend who doesn't know their rights? What we see is people sort of oftentimes roll over when they get denied because they don't have the resources to fight these things. And so I think it's really sad. Has the growth of social media platforms, Twitter, if you want to take something up and, and use it as public leverage, or even in a context of just getting information out about either 
the access challenges or even more broadly speaking, just the composition and the activities of the disability community. Has that been changed by digital media platforms, social media technologies, abilities to connect online, the kinds of digital technologies that, that we're used to hearing in other contexts are equipped to create community? Has that been significant for Angel City Sports or for the disability community broadly? Really, I said earlier, it's kind of the only way people could even find out about an organization like Angel City. So, you know, that's sort of interesting in its own right, that there is an aspect of sort of almost like an exclusionary strategy, because we're when you're bootstrapping a nonprofit to get things going, like you just have to be find the most efficient way to get started and, you know, being online and, you know, using the, the various software programs out there to register people and track, you know, like, like that's... There's not really a lot, an elegant other solution, right, to getting something started. Um, I do think that you see our stories in the media. So I think that is a good thing. I don't think the stories are always being told the right way, oftentimes with the sad music and, you know, despite all these challenges, like, can you believe this person is overcome, you know, like, so... We call it the like the inspiration porn, you know, side of this business. So the media often kind of goes crosses the line into that that world, which doesn't sit well with I would say the vast majority of of our athletes and community. But I do I think that generally our stories are getting shared, which is probably good in the grand scheme of things. But where I see the technology really being important is you can find yourself out there. You, if you're searching, if you're an amputee and you put in hashtag amputee on Instagram, I mean, you might find some crazy stuff too, but like generally you're going to be able to find people that look like you. And I would say the place where it is most vibrant is Facebook, which is interesting because it's missing this younger generation somewhat, right? Because it's just, I don't know that Facebook is as relevant for the younger, younger crowd, but there are so many little support groups on Facebook. I mean, there's dozens and dozens and dozens of amputee support groups on Facebook. And I, I try to get into them just to like see what's going on. And I can't even get into a lot of them because I'm not an amputee myself, right? So it's kind of funny that an advocate who's very close to the community, who's a major champion, can't even get into some of these support groups. So I think... If you're willing to look, technology has enabled people to find community, find camaraderie, find belonging, find people that look like them um, and have been in similar experiences. And so those groups are surprisingly active and vibrant, but they're not huge though, right? It's not like a group with like a, like 5 million amputees because those guys, that could, they could do some damage, you know, from a legislative and policy standpoint. It's like a group of 500 you know, here and a thousand here, you know what I mean? They're, they're really fragmented. I wanted to pick up on your comment about the way that the media oftentimes tells a story, particularly of physical disability in this kind of maudlin, sad violin in the background kind of tones. And one of the things I find very interesting in, in thinking about the intersection of disability and technology is that actually when you see disability in the narratives that are related to technological kind of storytelling, science fiction, for example, the tone really changes. One of my favorite pieces of academic literature 
about disability is a book called Fictions of Affliction. And it points out that frequently in older forms of storytelling, for example, Victorian literature, disability frequently occupies the space of affective or emotional sadness or melodrama in the novel. Tiny Tim, for example, is used in that novel to basically create sympathy and empathy for this family. But when you look at the space of disability in science fiction, it's oftentimes the creation of kind of new super ability, you know, uh, X-Men are kind of futuristic forms of super ability. And that's a really interesting shift. I, I wonder how, if you've thought about the way that technological developments have changed the way we think about disability at all, or whether you see it changing the tone in which disability is talked about. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. I think you're right that there's almost like, it's almost like polar opposite perspectives that you do see. And maybe there's just not enough in the middle there. Because when you go down the, call it the rat hole of this sort of technology is so amazing. It's almost better to have a disability now because you're, you get access to this incredible technology. To me, it's usually someone that probably doesn't understand disability very well to say even even begin to say that and a lot of people said that to me like oh his blades are so good you, you know it's like it's an advantage and better than a, a sound leg or whatever and and it's really just not true right the technology is not giving our kids and adults with these physical disabilities any superpower at all it's sort of not even really getting them back to where they started or back to where the rest of society is so it's like I do think, I mean, the, the superpower concept is alive and very, very almost ubiquitous in the disability space and certainly in the media's covering of it. And I do think that there are sort of superpowers that our community tends to have in resilience and creativity and grit and things like that. So but the technology really doesn't give us a huge advantage yet. <laughs> Ezra and I had this conversation about the debates that are visibly happening in the context of competitive sports with Marcus Rem and Oscar Pistorius, both of whom have been accused of unfair competition by running on blades. And Ezra talked about the bizarreness of that debate. <laughs> but I think it's really interesting, you know, I, I'm I'm suspicious of those debates as well, because I actually think that they're disingenuous. I don't think that they're sincerely about the people. I think that they're about something else. I don't know what else they would be about, but I, I actually don't think that they're sincere debates about ability. I'd hate to adopt that belief because it just makes it so sad. So I don't know that I'm going to take on your perspective exactly, but I do think, I do think that it's if you're close to it and you understand how hard it is to operate on a blade, it's sort of mind-blowing to imagine. And I give just walking as an example because it's so simple, but you know, as an above-knee amputee, the act of walking is so complex. So when Ezra swings his leg and the heel lands and the leg is straight, the, the knee locks. And the second he rolls his weight to the toe, the knee breaks and bends, right? And it starts the next step. But if you're not paying attention to that in exactly when the knee right starts to bend, the prosthetic knee that is, you end up on the floor. And this happens to him all the time. And this is an incredibly coordinated, skilled 
amputee who's been at it his entire life. And so, and that's, that's the simple act of walking, right? Nothing to do with the complexities of running on a blade. You know, one of the things that I've been increasingly coming to understand working at the intersection of ethical and equitable technology is that a large number of our most familiar and important technologies, things that we use in our everyday lives, like audiobooks, I consume you know, two to three audiobooks a week, cruise control of vehicles, I use it every day, keyboard, Amazon.com, Alexa, Segway, uh, electric transporters, voice activated dictation that features on all of our iPhones. Um, those were all created as assistive technologies and the technology underlying each of the products I mentioned was brought to market to assist people with disabilities. It was only after they were introduced and uh, adapted into products for mass use. It was only after they uh, they had been introduced as um, as assistive technologies. What, if anything, do you think that this tells us about the relationship between tech and disability? So I love this question. For the record, this question like speaks to my heart, and I for some reason I feel like. The story in tech is so obvious and clear, yet it hasn't really been propagated with any veracity because I, I think your thesis is dead on. I think that when you solve a problem for the community or the user base or the customer segment that is the most challenging, right, has the most complexities, takes the most time takes the most investment, takes the most focus groups, takes the most you know, revisions to the product. I do think you learn and you can improve whatever that product or service or experience is for everyone. And I think that that, that thesis is not as widely accepted as it should be. Um, and it you know, it reminds me a little bit of in my early career, I was in the environmental world and I um, worked at the EPA for a couple of years and did uh, stratospheric ozone layer protection work. We were working to phase out ozone depleting chemicals. And we would put these challenges to industry. Hey, you got to get out of this chemical. This chemical is terrible, right? It's destroying our ozone layer. You need to find a substitute. And industry would sort of ham and haw. They didn't want to do it. It's going to be expensive. And every time they figured this out, they saw all kinds of um, system improvements, process changes, other um, redundant or unnecessary, you know, um, uh, inputs. Like they would almost like revise their whole sort of system for doing whatever they were doing, whether it was cleaning aircraft parts with, you know, toxic solvents or, you know, whatever complex refrigeration systems or whatever it was, wherever these chemicals were. And the benefits were incredible. Like we were writing these case studies, you know? Um, so I just thought there's there such a great story here. It's, it's still being told. It's still live. There's still so much to do from a tech standpoint to make our lives better. And um, I don't know, what is the lesson that the, you know, the technology companies should have, you know, focus groups that are just full of people with disabilities, maybe. I mean, my thinking is that this is essential to what we understand as empathic and humane design. And also, I think it tells us a little bit about the relationship between equity in the sphere of production, meaning that 
if you have an inclusive and equitable concept of imagining, then your products might be better as well. One thing I always talk to my undergraduates about is that before any technology can be created, it has to be first, it has to be imagined. And that we imagine and we build in relationship to the body that we have and the perspective and the experience that we have. There's there's nothing morally wrong with that. That's morally neutral. But I think that if we know that we design for our bodies and the way that our bodies move in space, then the only way to really equitably change the way that we imagine and thus the things that we build is actually to include as diverse of a group of people as possible in the production and in the design of products. So maybe the answer is include people with disabilities in the production of technologies to think about how those things might work. You know, in, in fact, when I talk to my friends in venture capital, so many of the innovations that they and that I find so exciting are the ones that focus on adaptive technologies, technologies uh, focused on disability and, and accessibility. For example, I was talking to a friend of mine who told me she'd just come from a venture capital pitch for a technology that provides motion sensor for wheelchair wheels. And to me, I think, oh, that's so obvious and so necessary. Wheelchairs moving around in space bump into things all the time. It would be so nice and so helpful and so, again, obvious to have motion sensors. How can nobody have thought of this already? But nobody had thought about this already because the people designing wheelchairs oftentimes are not the same people using wheelchairs. This is a multi-million dollar service. You know, what about, for example, um, an app, a ride sharing app that allows you to select a vehicle that is accessible for people with disabilities? That seems to me to be a very valuable problem to, to solve. So many people, probably most of us at some point in our lives are going to have mobility issues. These are, I think, really valuable problems to solve. If, if we can think about technological development in those terms. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And I, I, I mean, I think that the application of tech, it's just, it, to me, it just, it's so obvious, so elegant, but it, it's, it is everything, right? I mean, it's like buildings. I was overseas uh, with Ezra at World Championships in Dubai and I was in a part of town that was new and there's all these new buildings and like half of them had curbs, you know? So, and they're building really fast there and maybe codes don't get followed every time. I don't know. <laughs> like, why would you build a building with a curb, right, in today's day and age? But clearly the person building it or designing it wasn't in a chair. What kind of technologies would you want to see? What kind of inventions would you want to see? And also, since we're talking to the next generation of technologists, um, what should the next generation of technologists consider when they get into their careers and start designing and building and imagining? Man, that's a great question. I mean, I think at a, to me, there's sort of like a twofold opportunity, you know, one is making sure that the things that everyone else are doing are available and accessible, right? So, you know, that looks to me like screen readers and things that overlay, right? The digital world that um, articulate and explain what's actually happening. Um, you know, so I think that's because they don't, at least the most of the people that I know in the community don't don't really want to be excluded, right? Don't want to be limited in what they can participate in, in in society. So I think that's like at a really, really high, high level. And I think there's also like a piece of um, kind of standardizing achievement. And, you know, so I think like a blade is a great example where an amputee, you know, how could the amputee run as fast as a non-disabled person? How, you know, how could 
a person with one arm perform the exact same job as a person with two arms? How how good could that prosthetic arm get just in the area of prosthetics? And I promise you, if you looked at wheelchairs and other assistive devices that are meant to sort of, you know, they're an attempt at parity. I think there's just massive opportunities there, right? To your point about the wheelchairs earlier. I mean, I just think they don't want to be left out of anything. So figure out ways to make sure they're, they can access everything. And then from a kind of a human potential performance standpoint, whether that's at sport or work or music, you know, whatever it is, I would say, let's take the assistive technology to a whole nother level, you know, and when you see a really, I'm just going to use a sport reference for now, but like when you see someone like Ezra running incredibly fast or doing the high jump or something, or even just walking, he's so coordinated, you almost don't even notice that he's on a prosthetic, but he's really at a very high level, you know, in performance. So how do we make the technology that good that you don't have to be an Ezra to make it look easy, right? It's easy for everyone. I wanted to go back to the the context of hiring, especially because I know that you recently launched, launched the Ampla Institute, a career development and planning firm focused on helping folks with disabilities launch their careers. I wanted to ask you a little bit about why you started Ampla. What, what problem were you trying to solve? In getting to know the community at a much more personal level, like when we have events, like I, I tend to know most of the, a lot of the athletes. And if I don't, I will quickly get to know them. And I've heard the story over and over and over again, that people with disabilities cannot get jobs. And in some cases, it's sort of like these kind of quiet forms of discrimination where people get you know, rift, which is a reduction in force, right, uh, out, um, they just kind of get lumped into some restructuring or whatever. And, you know, in other cases, it's really wonderful, sharp, beautiful, motivated, talented people that just can't can't get that job. And a friend of mine is an MBA from USC, couldn't get a job, you know, has had the really, really hard time, which is sort of incredible to imagine. Um, but those stories are just sort of never ending in our community, you know. And so I've always had a passion for career development and um, always been sort of a good person to talk to about careers. <laughs> I've always sort of been a career coach my whole life. So yeah, so last year I sort of started to just connect with people that were needing help and help guide their careers and and have advised a, a, a number of Angel City athletes just on the side. And then now I'm actually kind of have my own coaching framework where I offer career coaching to, to anyone, you know, who would like to, you know, have a coach in their life. And, and, and then I will kind of be bringing some of these sort of services into the Angel City family as well. But, uh, but yeah, no, it's, it's, it's really interesting. And I know you, you care a lot about this DNI space and my conversations with, let's call it fortune 500s has been pretty disheartening. I, I would say they, when you get the DNI people that are connected to disability, they understand the opportunity, but they don't tend to have the resources, even of their peers in the DNI space that are working on race and gender and even, you know, sexual orientation. It's just like everybody seems to have sort of jumped, kind of moved up the ladder and disability sort of seems to stay kind of at the bottom of the ladder. I know there's a lot of energy and momentum here, so I'm not, I'm not saying this is going to be this way forever, but... It has felt like there weren't a lot of resources. There weren't a lot of ideas to fix it. And I have actually offered a number of companies to build them a pipeline of talented people with disabilities, and they weren't that interested. So 
that's why I've had to pivot Ample Institute to be broader than disability because it didn't really feel like there was interest in building that pipeline, despite everything you see on the website. Did you have a theory as to why they weren't that interested? My theory is resources are scarce and resources have just not been allocated to this yet in a substantial way to make a difference. And I think there's also still a lot of, let's call it misunderstanding around disability. I got a lot of questions, okay? And I'm not even, I'm not a workplace accommodations expert, right? Like I could I could be helpful there, but I don't know the, the laws, right? It's not my job to measure, you know, door widths and th- like, that's not, that's not me. Um, but man, I think there's still a lot of, let's call it lack of education and um, fear around accommodations, right? And fear around lawsuits if they didn't sort of get the accommodations right. So that's, if I had to read between the lines, what I see and saw in the sort of Fortune 500 world. And again, I think it's changing, right? And I think it will change, but it's pretty disheartening. There's a major article that was published a few weeks ago in Bloomberg that focused on what you were talking about here. Uh, on the recent news that the NASDAQ stock exchange is poised to push businesses to a new level of inclusion with its proposal to require all listed companies to have at least two diverse board members, a proposal for inclusion that notably did not include people with disabilities. There's a big push toward DE&I right now, as you and I have talked about offline as well. Um, And listeners of this podcast know a major focus of this ethical technology initiative is uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And that's really central to the broader initiative of which this podcast is a part at the university. The article in Bloomberg noted that this omission leaves out a segment of individuals who represent more than $8 trillion in purchasing power, not to mention an untapped workforce, as you were talking about, of millions of qualified Americans eager to find competitive and integrated employment. This isn't tech-specific. NASDAQ extends beyond the tech industry But of course, the tech sector features majorly in the stock exchange, especially in this moment. It's one of the largest and quickly growing uh, workforces in the world. So what's your thought about this particular moment and the lack of inclusion of disability in that DEI push? I saw the the Bloomberg article. And in fact, I I sent uh, Senator Harkin (laughs) a little letter just thanking him for the for the article, it's sort of shocking to me, you know, that we're, it feels in some regards, like it's still like the 1980s, you know, which there was progress from the seventies, you know, where we were still struggling to even like mainstream kids with physical disabilities into schools, you know? Um, But it feels like we're really behind the times here. And I'm not sure what it's going to take to sort of fix this. It's, it's interesting if you look at like even just looking at like the sort of the racial conversation out there, right? We've got the George Floyd protests and now we've got this whole wave of anti-Asian, right, violence. And maybe there's a moment like this where at some point, right, we, we, we sort of better understand disability and we better see it. I don't know. I mean, I, like I'm, I look at everything kind of from a sports lens, which is kind of funny. Um especially for your show, but like the Paralympic games are coming to Los Angeles in 2028. And maybe I'm putting too much hope in the Paralympic games. But if I look at what happened in London in 2012, they moved the needle in society in England. 
and it was an intentional, broad-based effort to leverage the Paralympic Games to further society's understanding of disability and reduce the stigma of having a disability, which thereby creates opportunity and access and all these other beautiful things. And I'm sure there's still lots of issues there. It's not perfect, but like, talk to people in the UK. Things have changed. They have moved the needle. And so again, 2028 feels like a long way away, but it'll be here before we know it. I think this is our moment. I think the run up to the Paralympic Games, getting athletes like Ezra and some of these other you know, star athletes really prominent in the media, just that alone will be powerful. You know, it will just that alone. And then really understanding the numbers behind it and the challenges. There's a lot to be done. What do people get wrong when they talk about disability? What would you want to change about the narrative in the broader culture? We've talked already about the maudlin, which is misapprehension and the, the super technological, which you also say is a misapprehension. What do people get wrong and what would you want to change? That's funny. I saw this question on your list and I was like, gosh, I don't know what I'm going to say to that question. And then here I am hearing the question. I still don't know what I'm going to say. I guess I'll restate it to help me myself. What people tend to not appreciate or understand about disability, one is just the size of the community. You know, there are census reports that put it in at 15% of the population that has a physical disability. And it's probably underreported because lots of people in our country don't even admit they have a disability to anyone, let alone the government. These are staggering numbers. That's 50 million people in the United States. Um, so I don't think that the sort of the scope or size of the community is appreciated. I think people don't really understand you know, there can't really be one voice for disability because it's so fragmented because the amputee's journey is different than the spinal cord injury, which is different than stroke congenital. If you're born with it or you acquire it later in life or you acquire it in late life, these journeys are really different. This is a challenge for us, right? That inherent fragmentation. I don't think people appreciate the economic struggle of this community in that when you have a child with disability, oftentimes, depends on the disability, but oftentimes a parent has to leave the workforce to make sure the kid is, you know, getting to the doctors and getting, getting taken care of and getting the equipment they need. So I just think there's a lot of things that we don't understand and appreciate about the community. On the flip of it, you talked about it earlier, right? When you dig in to the stories and you, I'm not going to say you walk in their shoes, but you sit next to that person and you really get to know their story, which you can do through your show. There's so much we can all learn from this community. I mean, I am a vastly better human being walking this planet or having disability found, you know, my family and being a part of Angel City Sports and getting to create something that benefits this incredibly diverse community makes me appreciate the beauty and the strengths and the abilities that are inherent in this community. And again, I mentioned that it's very fragmented and the journeys are different, but a lot of those strengths and the beauty is the same. Thank you, Clayton.